Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you this morning for the chance to be together, to sing together. I thank you for the sweet sound of your people's voices being lifted to you, even as we cried out that, that over everything we have, Jesus is better. And we pray today that in this time you would bring clarity, that you would help us, that your spirit would move in our midst now and through this church, that as we continue to look at various aspects of of how the gospel intersects with our world and particularly on issues of race and and your church's role in speaking as a voice into our world. And so, Father, these are nuanced things. These These are sensitive matters. And I pray today that your spirit would move. Would the words of of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing to you. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, Last summer, I took my son Simon to a Nats game. Pretty normal occurrence. We walked down to Nats Park. We we took the circulator bus because it's like a dollar, and so you can ride that down from this neighborhood. Um, After the game, we stayed late. We always stay and try to get our full ticket money's worth of a a baseball game, and so we we stuck around to the end. That game, I think it was the game that that Simon, um, you know, Simon's eight right now, and he was thrown a ball by Bryce Harper and caught it, and so he was lit up about that, and we had a great time at the game, and afterward, we were leaving the stadium, and we went back to the bus stop where the circulator was going to pick us up bring us back into the neighborhood, and um, I, I won't forget this experience because it, it's been indelibly pressed into my memory, but we were waiting to get on the bus, and um, the whole crowd of people, a bunch of employees from Nats Park, people standing around, and um, a man came, as the bus approached and, and stopped, and you know, the bus lowers, and there was an African-American man in a wheelchair um, who had no legs that was a, a worker at Nats Park, and he, the crowd kind of parted, and, and he wheeled himself up. And um, if, you, if you're around D.C., you know that the way this works is the bus kind of lowers, and then everybody backs up, and the platform folds out so that people that, have, that are disabled can get onto the bus. Well, in the, as I looked around, um, the bus doors opened, and three people just stepped right up onto the bus while the bus driver was preparing the seats for this man to get on. I looked around, and it, it, wasn't, it was striking to me. It was an obvious thing to me that as I looked around, it was me and Simon, and um, the three people that got on the bus had a skin tone more similar to ours, and almost everyone around us were African-American folks. And people started gently pleading with the three white people on the bus, saying, hey, uh, excuse me, can you please step off the bus? This man has to get on first. We need to let him on. And another woman chimed in, and another man chimed in. And, and gradually, the temperature started to get escalated. And people started to plea more passionately. And, and these three people standing on the bus wouldn't even turn. They just looked off into space, waiting for the bus driver to come back. And then finally, I was watching the whole thing unfold and was getting frustrated and increasingly angry. And so finally, I just said, hey, get off the bus. And, all, and the, the three people on the bus, like, it was like they hadn't heard anybody speak till that point. They looked around and said, oh, 
sorry, and they stepped off the bus. Now, watching that happen, we have two options. It could be, I know I'm not a small guy, and so it could be that they heard my voice. I also know that I, my voice, I've been told, can be a little commanding. And so it could be that they heard my voice and they were scared, but I didn't get that sense. You see, the reality of what, I, what we experienced that night is that they did not even pay attention to the people around them. They didn't see them. They didn't hear them. And it was only when I spoke up that they even realized anyone was speaking to them. Everybody else around knew exactly what was happening and spent time talking to my son as we all got on the bus together. And, and it, I was so frustrated and so angry because I want to believe that there's progress happening in this country, in this city, where people will be able to see each other clearly and see each other well and actually show basic human dignity to each other. And because that's at the core of, that's what was happening. It was a diminishing of people's dignity, and it was absolutely connected to the color of their skin. Now, we can talk about how people's dignity is diminished, and usually we jump to big extremes of white supremacy that are obvious. Or we say, you know, obviously, something like Nazi Germany, when there's genocide, there's a clear case. But it happens in passive ways as well when we treat people like they simply don't exist. Today, we're going to talk about the Imago Dei. That's Latin for the image and likeness of God, the image of God. It's a theological concept that is essential for us. We'll see what scripture says about the Imago Dei. We're going to look at implications for us, look at the brokenness of our world together and the hope that we have. And so that is where we're focused today. Last week as we started this series, Pastor Doug Logan took us to Revelation chapter 7 to show us a vision of Christ's throne and the beautiful unity and, that comes in multi-ethnicity as people in the end from every tribe and language and nation will be gathered together, worshiping Christ together. And so we have that vision in the end. And so today we're going to bookend it and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 1 with me. Um, everything's going to be on the screen as well. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one. We have a book table in the back, and you can take one with you today as our gift to you. And so Genesis chapter 1, this is what we read. God, in, in the creation accounts, there are two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. The first one is a broad picture saying God created all things, and then in chapter 2, it gets more personal and shows God's connection with the people that he made. I mean, right in between, we have the creation of man and woman, and, and a statement about, what, about who human beings are, and this is what we read in Genesis chapter 1. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is where it comes from. The very beginning of the biblical storyline has this portrait that means something that we were created in the image of God, and we're going to look at what it means today. So we're going to see three aspects of the Imago Dei, and then three relationships that get affected by it. And so that's where we're heading. Three aspects of the Imago Dei. The first is, so what, this is where, what does this mean? What does it mean that we bear God's image and likeness? We need to get to the bottom of that before we can start to see the implications. Three aspects. First, it means that we reflect God. A reformer, John Calvin, talked about this as we are, we are like mirrors. 
And as human beings, or as others have said, this is like the moon. The moon on its own doesn't, doesn't give any light, but it reflects sunlight when we see it in the nighttime sky. And so we reflect something of God, every one of us. Uh, the Apostle Paul like, he got past this and said, and, and as if we can escape this and said, listen, from one man, God made every nation of men and, and, and marked out where we dwell on the earth. And so biblically, every single person that lives bears the image of God and reflects something of God. Now, that's not fully. And so theologians talk about the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, that there are some attributes of God's character that we don't reflect that aren't communicated down to us. Things like um, God is omnipresent. We are not omnipresent. You are sitting right here, right now. And so you are in one place at one time. God is in all places at all times. That God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. None of us can claim that. And God is infinite and immutable, and he, he has a self-existence and total independence that none of us can claim. And so it's not saying that we reflect those things of God, but there are communicable attributes of God, things about his character that every one of us does reflect in some measure, that we reflect God's knowledge and wisdom, that we reflect his goodness and love and mercy and holiness, his peace, his righteousness, his jealousy and his wrath that we've been given a free will to make choices, and so there is an aspect of freedom and power that every one of us has, and every bit of beauty and glory that we reflect. And so everything good within us is actually a reflection of something of God's image and likeness. Again, like a mirror reflecting God into his world. And so this was the commission he gave in Genesis 1 in the verses we read that he said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. He created them and it goes on to the next verse and God blessed them and said to them, now be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living creature. And so we reflect God and the second aspect of the image and likeness of God is that we represent God in this world. And so, as those that reflect him, we also represent him. Human beings have been commissioned by God above every other creature that lives in this earth. We are not simply another aspect or another version of the animal kingdom. Yes, we have a biology, but there's something different. There's a soul within human beings that reflects God's image and likeness. And, and so God has given human beings, he's given us a measure of authority that's divinely commissioned and a responsibility that we will answer to him for how we have treated this world that he's made. And so we reflect God, we represent God, and the third aspect of the Imago Dei is that we relate. God the Father exists eternally, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, saying, let us make man in our image and likeness, male and female. And so we're created as inherently relational beings, and we have three relationships. We have a relationship with God, to other people, and to this created world. That means every person is born with this inherent dignity. So three aspects, three relationships. Short sermon, right? I've been out of the pulpit for five weeks, and so I'm not going to come back and do a 10-minute sermon. We have some ways to go here. <laughs> um, let's, now listen, what this means for us, to get practical, there was the theological side, the foundation that we needed. So that we tried, I tried to lay quickly so we could have time to expand this this morning. The, the reality that I want you to hear before we get anywhere else today is that this means that you bear God's image and likeness. 
Some of you need to hear this today because some of you have come into this place feeling not like a mirror that reflects him, but feeling shattered and broken and wondering if you have any value and worth. You need to hear today, you bear God's image and likeness. You have dignity and worth in the eyes of your creator God because you reflect him. When God looks at you, he sees something of his own image and likeness within you, his reflection in you. And no one can take that from you. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've been treated and what's been done to you, you have a, a, a value and worth in the eyes of the almighty God. And he loves you because we bear his image and likeness. Now, what happened? When we look around at our world, it, it, this sounds like something that sounds nice, but it doesn't look like, it doesn't feel that way when we look around us, because sin changed everything. Genesis 3 shows us that human beings chose to rebel against God, and that impacted those three relationships. It impacted our relationship with God, it impacted our relationship with each other, and it impacted our relationship with the entire planet, and it, because of the curse it goes on to say, God said to the man, cursed is this ground, this earth, because of you. And Romans 8 goes on to say that all of creation is groaning and longing for the day of its redemption because it has been shattered and broken. You see, Genesis 1 shows that we were created in the image and likeness of God. And in Genesis chapter 5, there is a seismic shift in human reality. It's in a genealogy. And so my guess is most of you haven't spent a lot of time reading it. Even if you read the Bible regularly, genealogies are usually a spot we get to and we're like, I don't know these names. And so I move on to the story. Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy, but listen to what it says right at the beginning. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. Great. That's what we just read, right? When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, look at this, in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. This is after Adam had chosen to rebel against God. Seth was not born in the fullness of the image and likeness of God. He was born in the image and likeness of who? I heard like two of you. Now, come on. It's on the screen in front of you. This should not be a difficult question, church. Who was Seth born in the image and likeness of? Adam. And so there's something of the image and likeness of God, but, but something had happened along the way, and this is true for us now. Every one of us bears the image and likeness of our parents. Now, that's true physically. Like, you can usually tell who somebody's kid is just when they walk into the room. Those of you who have children at Redemption Hill, it's not like I have to ask questions about who belongs to who because they walk in and I go, yeah, that looks like a little version of them. Like, you look at our daughter Leanne, she looks like a little version of Alyssa. It's, it, which is the better side of the traits for a girl to get, no question. Now, she bears that image and likeness. All, of, all three of our kids bear our image and likeness. But that also means that we deal with the sins of our parents. Most of us will struggle with very similar issues that our parents struggled with. We reflect them physically, and we bear their image and likeness in, in deep, deep ways in our souls. And you see, what happened after sin came into the picture and human rebellion came into the picture is that that mirror got shattered. And so we have a brokenness within us. Now, we still reflect God's image and likeness and his beauty and his goodness, but it comes through in shards. 
There's little pieces of us that reflect those things. And that has impacted our relationships across the board. It has impacted our relationship with God because we're told biblically that apart from Christ, we stand as enemies of God, opposed to him. It has impacted our relationship with each other, that we don't treat each other as those who bear God's image and likeness, and it's impacted our relationship with this world. But still, even in the midst of that brokenness, the image and likeness of God is still upheld, and God points it out. After the flood, where God wiped out humanity because of the violence of humanity against each other, that is the reason for the flood in the biblical storyline, is the violence of men against each other. And even after that, he came to Noah in Genesis chapter 9 and, sa- and said to him, whoever sheds the blood of a man, shall, uh, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. And then he renews the same call as Genesis 1, and you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so even in that shattered image, God still says, my image and likeness is within human beings. Those shards within us that reflect his goodness and beauty and glory. And so what we're going to do with the time we have left is we're going to start with a broad view and kind of get closer as we go and look at these three relationships. How has the brokenness of this world impacted our relationship with this world? And what do we see in this world? How does it impact our relationship with one another? And how has it impacted our relationship with God? That's the order we're going to go in. So first, the Imago Dei in our world. I shouldn't have to make an argument here that things are broken. We have the news cycle to look around us every single day. Even the minimal example that I gave when we started today. I know some of you were interested in actually listening. Some of you undoubtedly heard what I was saying and were kind of dismissive of it. Like, oh, come on, you don't know that that person didn't hear you because it was black people trying to talk and they were white. You don't, and so you were trying to explain it away. Some of you sitting in here today are like, well, yeah, that happens all the time. That's not surprising in the least. This world is broken. The church, as Christians, we should be able to call out that brokenness. It is, it is everywhere in the text of the storyline of our, of our Bibles. That Now, we're focused in this series, particularly on race. As soon as we talk about the Imago Dei, that's where we're going to focus. And so let's just go right into it and talk about the reality of how we've gotten to where we are culturally. Now, on August 19th, Later on in the same series, we're going to spend an entire day talking about our history. How did we get to where we are, nationally and in the District of Columbia? So we're going to spend time really unpacking this in a full sermon. And I plead with you to come that Sunday. But also that Sunday afternoon at 3.30 in the afternoon, we have a, um, a set-aside time of a panel interview with some of the trustees of Ebenezer Church. This church has been on this corner since 1838. It's people that have lived through a lot in the District of Columbia, and so some of their trustees are going to join us, and we are going to sit and learn from them as a church family. And so mark that on your calendar and make sure to come and join us for it, because we want to humbly learn as we go. But let's, let's go right into it. The, the brokenness of the Imago Dei in our world and in our nation, we cannot talk about this issue without talking about the fact that the, the great sin that hangs over us as a nation through today is the reality of chattel slavery. There is a brokenness and a depth of brokenness and woundedness and wounds that simply have not healed. We aren't just over it. And, and in fact, the last few years have only brought more things to light, but it's not because it's new things. It's because people now have a cell phone and are able to get video evidence of things that go on in this world, and you can't dispute it as easily. And so at its core, 
chattel slavery was an affront to God. It was a diminishing of the image and likeness of God. It was treating people as possessions who were less human, who, didn't, who weren't looked at as bearing his image and likeness. And so this wasn't at its core just a sociological issue. This was a theological issue. It was an issue of sin and rebellion against God himself. This isn't, I'm not the first person to point this out. Frederick Douglass said this, the slave is a man, the image of God, but a little lower than the angels, possessing a soul, eternal and indestructible, capable of endless happiness or immeasurable woe, a creature of hopes and fears, of affections and passions, of joys and sorrows, and he is endowed with those mysterious powers by which a man soars above the things of time and sense and grasps with undying tenacity the elevating and sublimely glorious idea of a God. It is such a being that is smitten and blasted. The first work of slavery is to mar and deface those characteristics of its victims which dis distinguish men from things and persons from property. Its first aim is to destroy all sense of high moral and religious responsibility. It reduces man to a mere machine. It cuts him off from his maker. It hides him from the laws of God and leaves him to grope his way from time to eternity in the dark under the arbitrary and despotic control of frail, depraved, and sinful fellow man. Frederick Douglass saw it. This is a theological issue. It's wickedness and sin. And if you think that's too distant to bring up, you've got to realize, like, in the news last week, there was a story of a construction site in, in Sugarland, Texas. Nearly 100 bodies were found in a mass grave site. And it, they, as they started to explore where did this come from, the details came out that these were African Americans who were worked to death in a prison labor camp from 1878 to 1910. Listen to those dates, 1878 to 1910. Now remember, the Emancipation Proclamation was January 1st of 1863. Texas didn't free enslaved people until June 19th, 1865, more than two years later. If you haven't heard of or recognized Juneteenth as a celebration, you, you've got to educate yourself on what that means. Convict labor camps then existed until 1914. That's almost 50 years of continuing the same systems under a different name. We have to recognize how the Imago Dei has been violated and destroyed in our world and the ongoing effects of that in the reality that we face currently. The theology of the Imago Dei was the bedrock foundation for the civil rights movement and Dr. King's work in the late 1960s as well. Um, Dr. King said this, we put his quote up. He said, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them God in, that God injected, an ability to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness, worth, and dignity, and we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from a treble white to a base black, is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. 
so this is the theological foundation that if we're going to have hope for seeing healing come from the wounds of our past, we've got to begin with this, this place. And the primary difference that we see between movements today, modern movements, and what happened 50 years ago in the civil rights movement is that 50 years ago, it was, it was based on a theological foundation. The church helped lead the way in this. The Imago Dei, the idea that everyone had inherent dignity and worth and value was the foundation for all of it. The modern civil rights movement is unmoored from the church. Often that's because the church stopped fulfilling their call from God to step into these spaces. But that lack of foundation has led to movements that are reactionary and fueled by anger, and it's like a boat that doesn't have an anchor that just gets blown and tossed around by every wind and wave. So church, we need to see that there's a theological foundation for us to fight for and speak up to the good of all people, the good of our city, to lift up people's dignity and be a part of that work, and it's a foundation of the Imago Dei. This stuff oozed out of the early church. The early church wasn't in a position of political power. They were in in a position as as a marginalized minority group that stepped into cities throughout the Roman Empire and worked for the good of their cities and the good of people. And the the earliest Christians devoted themselves to fight for human dignity, and it legitimately changed the face of this world. Tim Keller says this, he says, they were champions of women, they were champions of orphans, they were champions of the weak, they were champions of the poor, and they were against abortion. They put the rest of culture to shame because of their belief in the sanctity of life, so eventually the whole Western world adopted the idea of the image of God. Now, they didn't have power or control, but still... They were so committed to understanding the dignity of other human beings that they fought for it, and it brought change. Now, I understand that some of you are uncomfortable as we talk about these things, and I've gotten some pushback already in the series, looking toward this series, as if these concerns about talking about race itself is a political issue. And so I've heard this, that some of you are concerned that, that we are leaning certain ways politically or that the church is going to become overly politicized. And, and if that's you, I want you to hear from me, I don't think that's the case. There are moral issues that the Bible speaks to that we need to speak to. There are moral issues that we need to take on. This is an er- a particular area of brokenness in our world that people don't know. I don't think Christians know how to even talk about issues and the divides and the brokenness of our world in racial tensions that exist. And so as we take this up, we're not taking this up as a partisan platform. And I don't, at this stage, I don't know that any true Christian can fully embrace the platform of either of our major parties. There are aspects to, to both that are broken. Neither one has a corner on Christianity. And so... We're taking this on because we need to look with clear eyes at the world around us and stop responding to the news or issues that come up through a purely politicized lens. Our present moment culturally has brought heated divisions from our past back up to the surface, and we are confronted with it on a a weekly or daily basis. And so what what I want to urge us toward is, is to have this foundation beginning to say, hey, if we really believe in the Imago Dei, if we really believe that this is true, if we really believe that the people in our lives, the people in our city bear God's image and likeness, this is gonna shape us in ways that we don't get cornered into polarized aspects that, that we are pushed into in media and in, in the political sphere. And so it means that when something goes wrong, if someone dies we will and, and their life 
life is taken, we will cry out in lament that someone lost their life. That we look back to Genesis 9, where, where Noah was told, listen, no one takes another man's life from him without it having consequences, because I made you in my image and likeness. It means that when we see people degraded, when we see people spoken against, when we see people marginalized, when we hear the stories of that happening, we aren't afraid to call it out, and we are, are willing to actually enter into those spaces and into the pain of it and to weep with those who weep. It means that the church will call out evil for what it is. It means that the church will weep with those who weep and repent where repentance is needed and, and work hard to lift up the dignity of every person. But too often, the church has failed by being forced into these polarized categories, and rather than standing boldly on God's word and upholding human dignity, we, we fall into paradigms that are forced on us, and we don't blow them up. Now again, some of you are on edge right now because you don't know where these things are going to go. That's fine. I know that some of you have already dismissed me. I understand that that's the reality. And some of you have dismissed me because you think I'm too progressive. Some of you think I'm way too conservative, which is fine. Jesus is neither a Republican nor a Democrat. Some of you think I ought to just stay in my lane and just preach the gospel. And that's the cry that was existing in churches throughout the era of American history that, that included slavery because people said, don't speak into these cultural issues and cause division, just preach the gospel. No, the gospel speaks into these realities. And some of you have dismissed me because of the color of my skin. Why is a white guy talking about race? And what could I have to say about race? And I understand there are some aspects that I am on a journey of trying to learn. As your pastor, there are theological realities that aren't contingent on the color of my skin. And so we are walking into this together, believing that race is not an issue of right or left, but human dignity and flourishing aren't an issue of right or left, that these are moral issues that are everywhere on the pages of Scripture. You cannot avoid them. Last week, Pastor Doug helped us to see that, that we preach an all-people's gospel, that Jesus is uniting all people together, that there is a unity that is a Christ-centered unity that comes as we are brought into the family of God. And we need to understand that when we get to eternity in his presence, there will be people from across this world speaking different languages than we speak, that have come from different backgrounds than we have come with, and that if we get uncomfortable with the idea of that kind of diversity, we are not going to be very happy in his presence for eternity. And so we are part of a global movement of the gospel. We just want to see those things more in reality, even locally. So what this means, as we get pushed toward polarized categories, think about this. Again, we're just going to go for the hot, one, hot issues and things that, that make people uncomfortable to bring up. So um, we're going to lean in together. I'm probably going to misspeak, and I'm asking you to give me grace, and we'll, we'll lean in. Think about this, the issue of policing currently and how people look at police and how interactions with police are going. We are told that you need to land in different camps so that you're either pro-cop or anti-cop. No. I don't think that as Christians we have the freedom to be that polarized. 
We can say, hey, I have some things that trouble me about the movement Black Lives Matter and the organization Black Lives Matter, but still say, hey, if your life matters. And there are things that are done that are wrong and need to be called out as wrong. We can say that without saying every cop is bad, but say, hey, police put their lives on the line. It is a risky profession. It's hard on their families to see somebody walk out the door every day. There's a dignity to that profession, and we need good police to, bring, to help to bring order and, and, and to, to help to protect and to serve the things that they're called to. And you can say those things and still say there are times when police overstep their bounds and abuse their authority, and there are people who do evil things behind the badge. We don't have to say it's all in one side or the the other. Instead, our calling is to say, hey, everyone that we're talking about bears the image and likeness of God and has inherent dignity, and we need to be able to call those things out. We, listen, you can, it's, it's in politics and in the media that they want to make divides over the issues, and the church must not have our stance dictated by allegiances to kingdoms and agendas other than Christ's. Anyone, any system that diminishes or denigrates the Imago Dei and any person stands opposed to God. So this is some of the brokenness that we see in our world around us. Now let's bring it down to a more personal level and talk about the brokenness in relationship to one another. There are some callings that we have in Scripture based on the theological foundation of the Imago Dei, on three of them. The first is this, love your neighbor. Um, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he chose to throw in there, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Why do you think those two are connected? Jesus said that sums up all of the law and the prophets. You want to look at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant? These are connected, and that sums all of it up. Why, why are they so connected? If our primary calling is to love God with everything we are, and every person bears the image and likeness of God and reflects something of his beauty and goodness and dignity, then of course the call to love God would extend to those who reflect his image and likeness. If we had figured this one out, our world would be in a very different place. Our nation would be in a very different place. And instead, we haven't carried out the call to love our neighbor. Jesus addressed this head on in Luke chapter 10. And so I'm just going to let his words speak. There was a guy who came to him and said, who was a lawyer, who was someone who was devoted to the law. That's not lawyer like we think of lawyer, because lawyer that we think of lawyer, you're like, what does that mean in D.C.? It could mean anything. You'd be doing like corporate contract law. You could be a prosecutor. No, this was a guy devoted to old covenant law, so he was an expert in the religious texts. And so this lawyer came to Jesus, and he said to him, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He's saying, you know you're an expert. So the guy said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We need to be honest today, church. Before we stand above this guy, we need to admit that every single one of us asks the same question. Great, everyone bears the image and likeness of God. What about 
that leader? What about these people? What about people who deserve what they get? Who's really my neighbor? And so this is how Jesus responded. He said, okay, trying to justify yourself. Well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he gave out two denarii and gave them to, to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the, a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus called out a Samaritan as the good Samaritan here because the Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. They didn't believe anything good could come from that place. They, didn't believe, they believed that those people were less than human. They, they were half-breeds that had, because of an exile that had happened. And so they looked down on those people because of their race. And Jesus took that moment to lift up the dignity of an entire people group to this religious expert. But I want you to see this. What, the man, what Jesus calls them to, I think every time I had heard this taught in my life, the focus of the Good Samaritan turns toward, look at the sacrificial, look at what it cost the man. Look at the money he was willing to put forward. And that is such a, a, a Western individualized perspective here. What we need to see is that someone stepped across cultural boundaries and treated someone as if they were actually human. He cared for the guy. He bound up his wounds. He took care of him. He put himself on the line for him. That's more than just money. He entered into a relationship and took the man personally to the inn. He didn't just say, like, hey, here's a problem. You got beat up. Take my wallet because I don't want to deal with any issues. Just, just go. Let me solve the, the issue with some, some cash thrown your way. He entered in with the man and actually treated him as if he had dignity, as if he bore the image and likeness of God. John Perkins, a um, civil rights legend, said, one reason the expression of the love of God is so often limited in Western society is, um, is that in people... Ah, sorry, I lost my spot. <laughs> One reason the expression of the love of God is, is so often limited in Western society is that we do not expect it to change society and people except in a very spiritualized and narrowly defined way. We see the gospel as primarily rescuing us from hell and getting us to heaven. We've lost sight of thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, and when we don't expect it to change lives, we won't see it change lives. You say simply, we don't really believe that we're called to love our neighbor. We don't really believe that world change will come through that. We don't really believe, and part of it is because we don't want to and because we respond the same way when we say, yeah, 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 yeah. People bear God's image and likeness. Yeah, I know we've got to love God with all we've got and love people until we drop. That's the call. We've got to go and do that thing. But then we do the same thing and say, well, Jesus, what about them? That guy? I mean, I don't want to get into those issues. It's too political. I don't, I don't really want to get into that. I, don't, I feel uncomfortable. There's a call to us that if the Imago Dei is true, that we love 
our neighbor. There's a second call to us, watch your mouth. In James chapter three, the brother of Jesus says this to us. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. That's great, right? That's the creation mandate we read at the beginning. He's saying we've done that, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. There's an implication that if people bear God's image and likeness, we will love our neighbor because we love God and they reflect something of God. There's an implication, the second implication that we have toward other people is that we will watch the way that we speak about people. We live in a time of rage addiction. This just happened this past week. There was a, this clip. If you saw it, it, was, it looked awful. There was this guy, there was, it was at Wrigley Field, a Cubs fan, um, which I'm a Cubs fan, and so the, like, these are my people. And, um, and we cheer for the Nats too. I just said that at the beginning. But there was a, a foul ball hit, and the ball like, bounced in a little kid in the front row of the baseball stadium, and it went under their legs, and you see this guy that just looks like a jerk that's behind them. Like, he just has that vibe where you look at him, and you're like, oh, you would do this. And he picks up the ball from behind the kid's seat and goes, woo, and hands it to his wife instead of the kid and social media lost it. Like, what, how could you do this? Let's find that guy. Like, this is also the Cubs fans who, Steve Bartman, who ruined the 2003 playoff series by reaching for a ball like any of us would, it still can't come out of his house. Like, people, and so people just lit up, and then it started coming out, the next, like, 12 hours later, Hey, somebody tweeted, I was sitting next to that guy. He gave three foul balls to that kid already in that game. And then that ball he gave to a kid, he just took a selfie with his wife before handing it off. See, we had a 10-second video clip, and we decided this guy was a jerk who should never be trusted, hide women and children around him. And it wasn't even the reality of what was happening. Like, the call to watch our tongues is not just verbal communication, church. This might have implications for us on Twitter and Reddit and on Facebook. It means that when we talk about people, even people we profoundly disagree with, that if you're a Christian who believes in the, in, in the Imago Dei, that you have to treat that person with dignity, even if you're attacking the ideas they stand for. We need to watch our mouths. The third implication is we need to repent. Every one of us. We need to repent for otherizing people. Every one of us has categories that we don't like, categories that we can't tolerate, people that we just think are so far gone that we don't need to treat them with dignity. We need to repent. C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours is the life of a, a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. 
And this doesn't mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Can you imagine what our world would look like if we treated people the way that God designed us to treat them? If we really did love our neighbor and watch our mouths and, and, and repent of when we've otherized people, can you imagine what a different place the church would be if these things infused us and if we treated people regularly as if they bore God's image and likeness and lifted up their dignity and instead we see the sins of our present reality perpetuated? So there's callings to us and implications to us. We, we see the brokenness of our world. We see the implications toward one another and then last relationship we're going to look at today is the Imago Dei in our relationship to God himself. These are the three relationships that were broken when rebellion entered in. And so we need to see the brokenness of our world and address it. We need to see the brokenness in our relationships and, and see what we're called to. But now let's talk about what it means that in our relationship with God. First, Jesus is the fullness of the Imago Dei. In Colossians chapter 1, we read this, he is the image of the invisible God. That seems pretty straightforward. Christ is the image of the invisible God. What this means is that if we want to see what God looks like, if we want to see how God would react, if we want to see what God thinks, if we want to see what God weeps over, and what God mourns, if we want to see what God celebrates and what he lifts up, we look to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. See, he is the image of the invisible God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means the men in Scripture who saw Christ saw God. And he said that in John 14. You've seen the Father because you've seen me. You've been with me. And so if you're, if you're a friend of mine, you're a friend of the Father's in heaven as well. He is the fullness of the representation of God's nature. And because Jesus came fully man and fully God... He, he has a purity of representation, the fullness of deity that can't be applied to us in the same way. But it's essential that he was fully human because that means he stood in our place for our sin. And this is what the biblical storyline gets to. The image of God was so badly shattered within every one of us that while it does mean that we all have dignity that is, and value and worth in the eyes of our creator, something had to happen to make right what had been broken. And that's the second aspect we see is that Jesus restores the image of God in each one of us. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read this. The call is to put off our old self. This is what every one of us is on our own, that to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on a new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So, 
this is what you need to hear today. Where we started in saying, every one of you bears God's image and likeness. Every one of you is loved by your creator. We see the love of God for us in Christ. Because in Christ, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And Christ came and he was otherized on our behalf. He was killed in our place for our sin. He was treated as if he had no value or dignity or worth. And it was God incarnate. When he was killed on the cross in our place and for our sin, he was taking the penalty and God's wrath for our own brokenness. But then as he was raised to life, he showed that death itself has no hold on him. That the brokenness of this world has no hold on him. And he then promised, he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And in Revelation, the, the, the book ends by saying that he is making all things new. That creation is groaning itself, longing for the day of its redemption. But what we see in the storyline of scripture is that Christ will renew and restore all things. This broken creation will be restored. We will be restored in relationship to each other. And it will be across every people and tribe and nation. Peoples that war against and hate each other now. There will be people from every people group worshiping Christ together for all of eternity in the end. And we are given a promise of a share in that inheritance if we come to Christ in belief and repentance. We are a part of the broad sweep of what God is doing to restore this place. And that means that that mirror that has been shattered is being reformed if we come to Christ. That the sanctifying work of God's Holy Spirit is to reshape that image and likeness within us. And that means that we will start to look more like Christ over time. And this is what we're called to then. Jesus calls us to a ministry of reconciliation. We're brought in, justified, declared righteous by Christ's work on our behalf. We're reconciled to God. That's what we celebrate in communion every Sunday is that we've been reconciled to God. We've been invited to the family table. We've been reconciled to each other and brought to the family table. And we're called then to be agents of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Do you hear that, church? That's implications of the Imago Dei. If you're in Christ and the image of God has been reshaped in you, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the calling of the church. 
the reason we just spent the time doing the hard, is some hard work of saying, let's understand how we've gotten to where we are culturally. Why is it important that we understand the brokenness of this world? Why is it important that we understand the brokenness of this nation? Why is it important that we blow up politicized categories and say, no, 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 the church must not be pressed into these neat little boxes. We instead need to, to tell, retell the narrative in light of the glorious gospel that we proclaim. Why is it that all of these things are important? Well, because we have a calling that if we've been reconciled to God, we now are called into his work to be agents of peace and reconciliation in our city. We're called as elect exiles in this place to be a part of God's work in bringing healing and hope where there's division and fractures and brokenness. We are called to be able to be agents in this place and in this city at this moment to be able to say to the people in this city, you have dignity and value in the eyes of the Almighty God. You are someone of infinite worth. And we know that because Christ died for you. And we know that it is an all-people's gospel and that, that Christ transforms us without erasing us and that the picture of what God is doing in our city and in our world is only made more beautiful by the fact that the gospel transcends culture and lifts all people into God's presence in the end. And so we get to be a part of that work now. So church, let's take it seriously. From here forward, let's regard no one according to the flesh. and Let's not look at people through broken categories. If everyone's been reconciled to God and the Imago Dei gives all people dignity and that image and likeness is being reshaped in us through Christ, then raise your voice when people are marginalized. If you have a position of privilege where people listen to you, speak up. Leverage it. Let's commit ourselves to the ministry and message of reconciliation and, and ask, to, what are you doing in your life to be a part of God's work in bringing healing? What is your community group doing to lift up people's dignity in our city and to be a part of God's work in bringing healing and wholeness and hope to a broken place? Let's, be, let's call out violations of the Imago Dei where we see them. Let's repent where repentance is warranted. It should never be hard for a Christian to repent. Because we were outed by the cross that we have nothing to give, but Christ came in our place. Let's watch our mouths and speak about people with dignity and honor. And hey, simply, church, we need to commit to love our neighbor because they bear the image and likeness of God. Father, would you help us? We need you. You're our only hope. Would you forgive us? for ways that we have mar contributed to marginalization of people? Would you forgive us for active and passive ways that we have diminished the image and like your image and likeness in people in our lives? Would you forgive us for demonizing people and, and, being, and having categories dictated to us? And would you help us to be a voice that blows those things up and brings a level of dignity and honor and is a voice for reconciliation and hope? We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.